Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Is there a canary in the coal mine? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Doomberg, editor of the Doomberg Substack. Hi, Doomberg. It's great to have you with us today. Maggie, great to be here. I, I must say I get to cross... Uh, Speaking with Maggie Murray off of my bucket list. That <laughs> and, and I get to cross being with a chicken, and this is this is a first for me as well, and I love it. I'm thrilled. Uh, you know, I, I I only know you through watching Tony Greer's appearances, and so now it's surreal that I get to be on with you. And uh, Tony's yeah. a good friend, as we were talking before, and I hope he's listening. And and again, great to be here. Looking forward to a great discussion. Yeah, and we and we of course track you from afar, and I know you've been on before, but it's the first time we've got a chance to do it together, so it's fantastic, and it's a great day and a great week to have you here. It really fits into the themes we're talking about, and so if we just start really near term, of course, uh, the last two days have been dominated by Fed talk. Fed Chair Jay Powell spent his time testifying, trying to tell Congress and investors that the Fed is really determined to get inflation under control. They're committed. You think they'll be able to do that using interest rate policy? You know, I, I think this is a fascinating phenomenon going on in the past six and nine months of the market, which is the following. Um, Powell comes out and says, I'm deadly serious, says something much more hawkish than the market expects, um, says that he's committed to um, doing whatever it takes to, to beat the back of inflation. Um, and then when that happens, the market is a bit surprised. It sells off the inflation sensitive sort of um, speculative equities have a rough day. And then in the days and weeks ahead, um, the market stops believing what he said. And uh, we see these sort of mini bubbles pop back up. And then Powell comes out and stomps on the bubbles again. And, and then um, the forward curves of interest rates keep getting pushed out. And when that pivot will be and higher for longer seems to be more and more the sort of consensus thinking. Um, here, of course, the testimony comes just a couple of weeks before the next interest rate decision. And so we'll see what happens between now and then. But I think you know the market now is correctly pricing in. It looks like 50 basis points at the next meeting, and and it's just amazing to watch. And and you know, consistent with that, or sort of alongside that observation, is the fact that the U.S. economy is doing pretty well. Like if you and I were talking a year ago, and we would have known that to the two-year interest rate on the Treasuries was five percent, and the economy didn't break, um, that would be that would be a surprise to both of us. I think if we could rewind the clock back, and so you know, will it break at six percent uh will it break when mortgage rates reach eight percent um i don't know but it was again another example of it's almost tradable at this point and which means it's probably no longer going to be tradable if, if we've noticed it but um you know when powell speaks the market gets surprised about the hawkishness and then eventually it convinces itself that um you know no landing is on the table or soft landing at worst and 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 the you know the the standard names that you associate with speculation begin to run again and 
And so the market is sort of testing Jerome Powell and Jerome Powell seems to be consistently saying, you better believe me, not just my words, but my actions. And so uh, we shall see. It's, it's been a fascinating to listen to him speak, uh, watch the senators, um, some of whom, you know, be clown themselves uh, on a regular basis, something yeah. must be said, but um, not all, always the most inspiring thing for the future of our democracy to watch those hearings. But at the same time, he's been pretty consistent and um, and the market has consistently underestimated him. And then one wonders what it will take for the market to internalize that he is going to do what he said he's going to do. Yeah. And and I think I think you you bring up a fantastic point. We were looking for something to break. I mean, that was the main concern. So I don't know. I feel like in so many ways we are talking about was it crisis averted or just uh, delayed? You know, do you do you see that the longer this sort of goes on, does it raise the risk that we see a really hard recession or really I, deep recession, I guess, hard I landing? Heard, I heard this analogy on a podcast recently. I wish I could remember where, um, and if I could, I would credit it. But one analogy that we've been toying with internally as to whether it might be applicable here is the time between when you pull the pin on a grenade and when the grenade explodes. And, mm. and the analogy that we would go back to is, you know, historically, we look back at the global financial crisis and we think that Bear Stearns and Lehman happened relatively quickly. Uh, in series, when in reality, there was an uncomfortably long delay between the two. And there was a long period of time after Bear Stearns went belly up and before Lehman Brothers did that the market thought, oh, maybe this is contained. And maybe mm-hmm. this was unique to Bear Stearns. And you know, a couple of hedge funds caused some contagion and caused the localized loss of crisis. Um, and then, of course, Lehman Brothers collapsed and AIG swiftly followed and needed the, the famous bailout that it got. And we had the bazooka, the famous bazooka, and the world you know, spiraled into a financial crisis. And we would characterize, um, in hindsight, using that mental model, that Bear Stearns was the pulling of the pin, and then um, Lehman Brothers was the explosion of the grenade. And one wonders um, whether that's not something we're experiencing right now, where we have sort of pulled the pin, the the ramp, the, mm-hmm. the violence of the ramp of this these inflation rate hikes, and traditionally what that would mean, and other sort of macroeconomic indicators that others more qualified than 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 I can expand upon. Um, are we in fact in that period where we pulled the pin and we're beginning to wonder whether that grenade is a dud, which would be great. Like that would be great. We're all for it. You know, we're all participating in the economy and growth is better than recession and certainly way better than depression. Um, but um, it is in the back of our mind um, and we are looking for milestones to, to see whether in fact uh, we have just pulled the pin on the grenade and, and we yeah. are not yet have enough time pass to determine whether or not the grenade is a dud. Doomberg, I think that is such a hugely important point. And I I was talking to Mike Green um, about the past, but also bringing up some instances. And um, if you haven't, check out our interview, and it's his fourth trade on volatility. And he points out that everybody thinks it happened here. It didn't. <laughs> it happened that the actual events started happening much earlier, and you and then you had that sort of delay when things started to, to crater. So that's such an important point, and I think something we all need to be thinking about. What what are you expecting? I know that you're really deep in the energy space and you watch and we've already got some questions about energy, but what what are you thinking about inflation? What is your inflation forecast? What are you expecting? We know the Fed thinks they've got more work to do. What are you looking at? Well, our base case would be to believe the Fed because that's what matters from an investor framework anyway. And um, believing the Fed and uh, behaving accordingly would have been lucrative um, every time the Fed speaks uh, in the past six months. Um, you know, inflation is tough to model. We're we're 
it's not in the sort of the, the target of our expertise, but we do think of the problem as much as everybody else. And we listen to people um, who, are, who are very qualified to opine on the issue. We think of inflationary forces as flows and you have flows that um, tend to increase inflationary pressure and flows that tend to relieve it. One of the biggest flows we believe, of course, is the violence with which China has reopened and completely pivoted on its uh, dynamic zero COVID policy. Um, our friends in China tell us that the propaganda pivot is almost unprecedented in the, in the Xi era. Um, it was overnight and um, they ripped the Band-Aid off and, um, and now you know, we've seen what happens when economies reopen from COVID lockdowns. And I would say, unlike the US, China stayed locked down, stayed locked down harder for longer and was more comprehensive about it. And so if the analogy is sort of holding a beach ball underwater, um, the depth with which the Chinese brought that beach ball down was far deeper than we did. And we saw this explosion in travel and you know, people spending their savings and speculation and all of that stuff. If we see a repeat of that in China on their scale, that inflationary pulse might overwhelm some of the other flows um, that, that would ultimately decide the net effect of the, of the matter. Mm. Um, and so China is what we're watching most carefully, you know, data like passenger, um, air, air travel passenger data and traffic data. Uh, we think it will manifest itself in the demand for oil. And so the price of oil is something we're watching carefully as we've seen natural gas completely collapse as the crisis in Europe was saved by the weather. Price of oil has actually held up quite well. And if you look at the ratio of the price of oil to the price of natural gas, um, that tells us that um, China reopening is is probably pretty strong and then that the Chinese have pivoted to coal and they've reopened their you know, acquisition of, of Australian coal and put aside their differences around the uh, the origins of the COVID virus. Um, and so um, the price of coal is still pretty elevated, $170 a ton, which I think is triple what it was pre-COVID, um, down from the highs to be sure. But um, that the price of oil is the thing we're watching most closely. If our thesis or hypothesis, I guess, it's not developed enough to be a thesis. If our hypothesis is that the, the, the pulse of, of Chinese economic activity will be higher than what people are thinking, it's true, then the first place we would look to see it is in the, is in the supply demand dynamics in the oil sector. Yeah, it's, and it's funny, it seems that as focused as we are with the Fed and what they're going to do and, and, and global central banks for that matter, you know, you, inflation has been um, trending higher and surprising on the upside in Europe as well. So the, there's talk around the ECB. It feels like so much of the conversation is concentrated on rates and people haven't been talking about energy and oil in the way that we had been previously is it do you think it's be, it's just because we saw that oil price drop or, or is there a little bit of complacency now about the fact that we're going to see those prices remain subdued so i would say that we have been lucky and um that is pleasing to us contrary to what some uh folks might imagine um that the weather you know it's easy to prepare for winter when winter doesn't come mm -hmm. and effectively this was the year without a winter in europe um, that comes with its own set of complications. And if you look at sort of river levels in Europe, which are critical to sort of the tactical operation of much of their energy sector, especially getting, you know, diesel and coal around the interior um, using the river system. Um, so one of the milestones we're looking at, of course, is the, the river levels on the, on the Rhine. <laughs> so believe it or not, it's an obscure measure, but it's something that investors should be looking at in our view. Um, but the winter never really materialized, thankfully. And um, the, the Western Europe led by Germany scoured the world for every BTU of energy they could get their hands on, uh, re regardless of price, 
carbon footprint or impact on the emerging world. And we're seeing sort of echoes of that um, scramble play out in places like um, you know, um, Pakistan and so on. And Pakistan, like we like to tell people, Pakistan is nearly a quarter billion people. This is not a small country. And um, they're pivoting back to coal. We wrote a piece called the Streisand Effect recently, where we talked about how the push to renewables in Europe ultimately rebounded uh, on the environmentalists and the world is seeing record demand for coal and will see record demand for coal for years years ahead. So the the intent was to get rid of coal and by doing so in what we would characterize as a clumsy and unscientific way, they have caused the opposite effect to occur, which is the rest of the develop, developing world um, looked at what Germany did and didn't listen to what Germany said and they are acting accordingly. And so, um, but back to the sort of inflation, you know, mm -hmm. We do think that oil is sort of the one universal commodity that is difficult to substitute. It can be burned for primary heat, but coal and natural gas are far more difficult to uh, refine into gasoline and diesel and lubricants and asphalt and and um, and pick your adhesives and all the other you know things that come downstream from a barrel of oil. And so um, oil has recaptured um, its place in the pecking order of um, you know, um, dollars per million BTU relative to coal, which was a, the single greatest anomaly in the energy sector in 2022, in our view. Um, first, just to expand on that a bit, for several months in 2022, um, correcting for the inherent energy content and units of trade, um, coal was more valuable to the market than oil, which had never really happened before, at least as far back as we can see. And that was a huge anomaly. And so now oil is back at, at the top of the pecking order, and um, and we're watching it very closely. Um, this this wave of, of Chinese reopening perhaps is being underestimated. And I think the Fed is watching it and is very aware of it and, and is a, a key reason why Powell was as hawkish as he was this week. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You have a, a great chart of that. I don't know if if we can. I'm going to come back to that coal in a second. So maybe when we do, we can pull up that chart that you were just talking about. Um, but I want to I want to talk about that sort of fundamentals of supply for just a moment more. I sat down with um, as we have been saying, we're in the middle of a two part series looking at some of the massive challenges that we're facing, and then uh, and that are frankly stressing us all out, and then also perhaps some of the solutions, potential solutions. So I sat down with Peter Zion this week to talk about the geopolitical challenges facing us. Um, and it was almost a year to the day that we spoke right after Russia invaded Ukraine. So it was really fascinating with that year, as you just talked about, so much has happened and, and so much of it around commodities. So we talked, sat down and talked about, you know, the fallout now with, with a year, you know, under our belt and behind us. Uh, especially as it relates to commodities. Let's listen to a clip from that, and then we'll talk on the other side. Bottom line here, the Russian stuff will all go away and never come back. That's cooked in now. 
the Russian technological base is weak. Their workforce is, was hollowed out before they started throwing hundreds of thousands of people at this conflict. They're un incapable of maintaining their own system, especially when it comes to energy and petrochemicals and mining. A lot of the growth we have seen around the world since 1992 has been about the inclusion of places that didn't participate in the first wave of globalization into the system. That's Brazil, that's China, that's Russia. If you go back to 1992, there was only one product where Russia was a top three producer, and that was oil. Now they're a top three producer of over 20 different materials that we all use every day. Without the Russians participating eagerly, this will all go away. The question is whether it's this month, this year, this decade. So we all need to prepare for that one way or another. It's a major, a major supplier out of the global system, basically. Yeah. I mean, food and energy we've talked about, lumber is in there, palladium. Let's say you want semiconductors, palladium and neon, integral parts of any semiconductor fab facility. It's, it's half the global total. So there's just a lot of things we're going to have to figure out how to do differently or how to do regionally. As always, when we catch up with Peter, very thought-provoking. Uh, he goes on to say that the loss of Russia as a reliable producer, in his mind, has massive long-term implications for Europe and Germany in particular. It's a, I, th I think it's fair to say a pretty contrarian view. Um, it's an absolute must-watch. We covered a lot of ground uh, on that. So the whole interview will drop tomorrow as part of our special two-week series. Just scan the QR code and become a member. So... Um, Thunberg, how are you thinking about the supply side of the story? And do you share that concern that if Russia's out either permanently or for a prolonged period, that it's going it's going to sort of, you know, keep that pressure on the supply side of the uh, scenario or side of the ledger? So I, I would begin my answer by saying that we're big fans of Peter Zion's work and we um, enjoy his his daily videos and uh, we certainly consume them. Um, he is a, a brilliant um, strategist and analyst, and um, but we do disagree with him on some points, and and that's okay. And one of the points, um, you know, so when listening to that clip, um, uses the word all, and you know, forever, and yes, very um, definitive language. <laughs> and I would argue there's a few um, points of nuance that perhaps is lost on on um, people who believe similar things. Um, again, we'd be the last to criticize somebody of peers. Stature and and he's clearly you know um, a deep thinker on the sure you just so, see the probabilities definitely. yeah well it's, okay, a, it's always a game of probability let's right take, even let's, even when Peter says that he's talking about this is where he thinks the probable outcome sure. is but what how do you see it well I would say one challenge that Peter's analysis is presenting that we find is very common amongst analysts based in the U S is there's a significant uh, overestimation of the Western technical capabilities in the oil patch and in the commodity sector in general and a significant underestimation of the technical capabilities that China in particular and India in particular have been building in the past decade, decade and a half while we've been de-emphasizing the sector. And I would sort of call that techno-arrogance mm. uh, or techno-overconfidence, I guess, because arrogance has a bit of a, a negative connotation that I'm not trying to imply here. But just to give you some numbers, in 2022, the United States produced a total of 400 petroleum engineers from you know, our university system. The Beijing campus of, of China Petroleum University alone, they have a university that has two campuses, 
It's called China University of Petroleum. You could Google it. And in 2016, they had 15,000 students in it. Um, IIT, the IIT schools in, in India are amongst the most competitive schools to get into on planet Earth. The students that get in there and, and choose petroleum engineering or chemicals or pick your favorite heavy industry are brilliant and they're outpacing us. Um, I've been to universities in both countries uh, in my time as an executive. We are radically underestimating the technical capabilities of China and India and their strong desire to get cheap energy from Russia. And so a key plank of Zihan's thesis is that um, the critical commodities that Russia produces, and he correctly you know, states that China is a major producer of many commodities, and if they were to completely evaporate from global supply chains, it would be a catastrophe of epic proportion, which is a point that we've made. Um, I, the, there's going to be an army of talented engineers and technology and workers and technologists, for example, um, that are going to be very seduced by the uh, possibility of accessing cheap Russian commodities. And um, unless the, and by the way, they will build pipelines and infrastructure at a speed with which, which would blind us mm. because they don't have the red tape and environmental activism that we do um, on this side. Um, and so uh, we would be a little more bullish, the capability of China and India and other Russian partners to replace the technology that Russia was leaning on the West for prior to Putin's foolhardy move into Ukraine. And uh, we would be a little more um, bullish on the proportion of existing Russian commodities uh, finding their way to the market a year from now than perhaps Zion would be for those reasons. Yeah, yeah, so it's so interesting. It also solves the sort of brain drain that people have been talking about from Russia. Yeah, well, again, um, okay, this is all part of, I think we were speaking before we came on the air, like I, I'm not a China expert and anybody who's based in the West who says they are should be looked at with some, you know, with little dubiously, but because it is a black box, but I did travel there several times a year for the better part of a decade and I have lots of friends there and and have seen and lectured at some of these major universities. And, and by the way, a fun fact, um, before COVID, 50% of chemistry PhDs in the U.S. were um, immigrants. They were uh, on student visas at the major, at the, say, the top 25 schools in the U.S. Um, and of course, all that went away with COVID. And so, you know, to, to be, uh, uh, that disrupted a lot of that really important brain inflow that the U.S. relied on to produce those petroleum engineers that we talked about earlier, or your PhD chemists and chemical engineers that are so critical to the types of technologies that Zihan describes. Um, they stayed home. Um, we lost that source. Um, and, and, you know, having been in the sector and hired hundreds of PhDs in my career, like I can assure you that one of our differentiating offers to that market was to be very efficient at immigration. Like this was just part of our compensation package because mm. the best and brightest minds pre-COVID wanted to be in the U.S. And, mm. and, and, and with very good reasons. And so we were able to skim the very top of these undergraduate universities producing these great students and they would all want to come to America. And not all, but, you know, disproportionately. Um, and now that was all disrupted with COVID and India and China are doubling down on these investments because they see the prize. The prize is access to cheap Russian commodities. You know, um, Zoltan wrote a great piece on encumbrance of commodities um, uh, probably about a month ago. We'd be more in the Zoltan camp than the Zihan camp on this mm -hmm. one for the reasons we articulated. And that only flows from our direct industrial experience. Um, and perhaps there's some other parameter that will overwhelm that. But um, if you push me and in listening to that video, I would be um, I would be bullish technical capabilities that are rushing into China today by the thousands to replace the brain drain 
um, um, that we pulled out. And 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 I would be for, certainly if we're game theorying this, you know, from a strategy mm -hmm. perspective, you should never underestimate your your political foes. And um, that sounds a little bit to me like an easy underestimation of, of what's actually going to occur. Yeah, fascinating stuff. And we'll be sure to be, you know, pushing on that as we as these conversations continue, since um, this is very clearly this issue of supply chains and access. Uh, well, look, man, all you need to know is that Russian oil is being converted into diesel, which is finding it in India and finding its way into the U.S. market today. And thank God it did because it, it helped uh, circumvent a, a looming diesel crisis all along the East Coast. And so mm -hmm. Um, Russian oil is being refined in India, and the products of that refining is, is finding its way to the U.S. market. And so in many ways, this is a bit of um, sort of a political grandstanding, I guess we would say. But um, these commodities are so valuable that if we learned one thing from the sanctions, if they will find their way to the market, it's just going to have a little bit more friction. And middlemen or you know middle actors uh, in between Russia and the Western world will take some risk. Uh, they will flout some sanctions, and they will be heavily compensated for it because the world really needs these commodities. And, and we didn't see, and we were amongst those who predicted that we might see uh, you know, um, famine and so on. Thankfully, we didn't. But a year later, the reason why we didn't is something we've tried to study and we've shifted our hypotheses accordingly. Um, and, um, and I think a year from now, Zihan will be surprised by how, how many of these commodities are still finding their way to the supply chains. You know, you mentioned palladium, I believe, in the clip. Um, they're so dominant, the world can't live without it. And so our view um, is if the world can't live without it, it won't live without it. Mm. The, mar the market will take care. Uh, I, I want to circle back to uh, Conscious of the Time. I want to circle back to coal. And as we talk about it, I want to. I, I think we have that chart to put up that you were talking about. Um, we saw that that big surge. It's now it's now come back down. But this idea that coal is now coal use is now here to stay, or at least it's not a temporary. Let me ask you, is it a temporary phenomenon or you think this is a shift that lasts? I think it's a structural shift. It's a structural shift. Yeah. Um, the piece we wrote, which the chart comes from, is called the Streisand Effect. And um, we have obviously all the time to detail the basis of that conclusion. And that this chart, let's explain this chart. So one of the challenges of comparing primary energy sources is they're all traded in different units and they have different inherent energy content. And so it, this chart is our attempt to correct for both of those things. And all we did was normalize coal and crude oil in dollars per million BTU, which is the unit of trade for natural gas. So um, here we show the, the, the prices from September and the prices from late February. And the thing that jumps out of us, which is not obvious in this chart, because Europe's natural gas prices spike so high that it stretches coal and oil to the point where differences are sort of hard to pick out from the naked eye. But if you look at the yellow arrow for Newcastle and WTI, in September, Newcastle was more valuable to the market than oil. Newcastle is the, the benchmark contract for Australian coal. Which would have been unthinkable. It was literally unthinkable. And in that same piece, we, know we, we actually just highlighted the five-year history of those two. It's since come back down, as you can see. Oil mm -hmm. is now more valuable than coal. And, coal is a, and all three have begun to trade in a more reasonable arbitrage band, which is what that dashed red box is meant to show on the chart. Mm -hmm. But this chart shows you just how crazy European natural gas got um, heading into the winter. And then what a reprieve the warm winter was um, for that. And, and things are now um, back to normal. And we would be the first to say, because when we saw that anomaly break out, we, ha we have a pro tier uh, set of subscribers at Doomberg. And in our monthly webinar, we, we pointed out this anomaly in real time. And we said, we don't think the crisis will abate until this 
anomaly resets to the sort of historical mean, it has. And so we would be the first to say that the worst case scenario risk of the energy crisis has abated, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, now the, we're back to sort of more normal prices. We see you know, natural gas um, uh, in Europe back to sort of pre-COVID levels, and that's all great. One of the things we've been saying though, is let's not um, take all the wrong lessons from this. It was a warm winter, great. If it's a cold winter next year, um, that's not gonna be there. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, to, to your question on coal, um, at $170 a ton or whatever it is today, that's still triple the pre-COVID levels. And at these levels, uh, coal miners are going to be making still very, very good cash. And to the question of structure, structural change, um, I do think the, the, the violence of the effort to get Europe through this winter left so many in the developing world out in the cold, literally, that they have vowed collectively that they're not gonna do this again. China, India, Indonesia, um, Pakistan, Mm. Sri Lanka's collapse, all of these things are feeding into the developing world, which is billions and billions of people. And uh, in the piece, the opening quote of the piece is from our good friend, Mark Nelson, who's uh, really an unbelievable energy analyst. And his quote is, if you don't love coal, you'll never get rid of it, which sounds like a weird thing to say, except when you listen to the context of when he said that quote. Um, we closed that piece by saying, you know, if we don't understand why coal is so valuable, yeah. we, have, we have no hope of beating our addiction to it. Coal is cheap, reliable, and easy to store for infinite periods. And replacement yep. energy technologies that fail across these parameters have no hope of decreasing global demand for coal. Quite the opposite. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. And so we're going to see cold. Yeah. So so let me jump in because that brings us to a quick, we've got a lot of questions around hydrogen, if it's a viable energy solution. And I think it's important to to think about it in the context of what you just laid out. Nothing will work unless it, it, sort of checks those boxes and, and we ju- what we just went through. But I'm going to add another layer to that because we also have people asking about, you know, w- what about specific coal companies? Is it, you know, it ha- can you invest in coal? Should you? Have you missed? So my way of combining them both would be, do you expect investment flows to continue into coal? Now, given some people have decided, you know what, this is my best bet to protect my people, keep my country going. Or would the smart money be looking for the alternative that you just described, and is hydrogen one of them? So um, I would say that coal prices will be elevated for longer than the sort of environmental movement was hoping for, which is the key thrust of that piece, which means coal companies will be making uh, more money for longer, assuming they could get banking, which was the subject of our piece on today, Pandora's precedent. Um, It's very difficult one of the challenges with investing in coal companies is the market traditionally hasn't rewarded you. You know, at the apex of this crisis, you had coal companies trading for less than one year's cash flow, which is the ultimate sort of value stock. Uh, and the analogy we would use, I guess, is people who invested in tobacco stocks years ago and just kept reinvesting their dividends have made a killing. So um, it's certainly uh, a compelling analogy. Um, difficult to pick which individual stocks will do well. Um, we love, of course, to invest privately where you get paid um, via dividends. And so you don't have to worry about what multiple the market is assigning you or whether Larry Fink is writing a letter and saying your industry is not investable, then people are pulling flows from your ETF, which no longer exists, by the way, um, the coal ETF. And so um, challenging question, 
to, to hydrogen, which is sort of a completely different area. We wrote a piece called The Hitchhiker's Guide to Hydrogen a couple of months ago. And hydrogen is an energy carrier. Hydrogen is not an energy source. Mm. So hydrogen, you, you should better to think of hydrogen as sort of a battery in the sense that you have to feed energy into creating hydrogen, which is not the natural state of the hydrogen um, atom. Uh, the hydrogen molecule is not the natural state of the hydrogen atom, not the thermodynamic sink of, of the hydrogen atom. Water is on our planet. And um, when you have hydrogen, it's highly reactive and it reacts with oxygen in the air and creates water. And so that's why it's a great energy carrier. But you have to make that hydrogen by splitting water in some way. And that energy penalty needs to be paid. And so as a general rule of thumb, you have to put in at least twice as much energy into making hydrogen than you could ever hope to extract from it. Uh, and that's before energy efficiency losses in the sort of extraction process that you choose. So hydrogen only works when you have cheap, readily abundant electricity, for example. So in a world where we regained our sanity and embraced nuclear power, you could imagine a fleet of nuclear reactors powering electrolyzers, making hydrogen that is then shipped around and burned in cars. Hydrogen combustion produces water. You don't need to use fuel cells with all those precious metals um, that, that go with that. Um, Toyota has a really fantastic um, hydrogen combustion engine that literally just burns hydrogen and, and you make no other compromises and, and so on. Like hydrogen storage has largely been solved for, for vehicle transportation. Um, and so, but you need that widely available cheap electricity in this case mm. in order to make the hydrogen economy work. And so um, we don't have that today. And everywhere we've installed renewable powers, our electricity gets more expensive. And so these dreams of powering um, you know, wind turbines off the coast of Newfoundland that somehow feed um, electrolyzers that ultimately, since you can't ship hydrogen to Europe, will feed um, you know ammonia reactors and then will ship this utterly dangerous material uh, on a boat, which is challenging to do, but doable to Europe. And then they'll turn it back into hydrogen and then and then use that hydrogen on a fuel cell to power a vehicle. The, that's a Rube Goldberg machine of, mm. of, of, of energy efficiency losses and silly, really. Um, especially when Germany has been shutting down nuclear power plants and could just feed an ammonia plant that is a disadvantage because of natural gas prices right there. And 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 so I believe that piece where we described that was uh, Chicken's Razor. I have this photograph. Here. <laughs> I uh, love it. I love uh, all the names uh, and you can understand them, even though you're like, wait a minute, um, yeah. when you read the pieces. I, I can't believe we're out of time because I feel like we could do a whole show and maybe you'll come back and we will on transition because it was always going to be a transition. I mean, this, you know, in 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 the universe, things get super, you know, black and white and polarized from complete death of fossil fuels to green energy. There's always going to be a transition. It's complicated um, and intense, but really worth digging into. Is there is there, if I can ask broadly, so we're getting questions about e-fuel, would that have backing to make it into America? What about natural gas prices if they go down? Doesn't that put a lid on coal? Is there, I think you so aptly described what the, the solution that needs to be focused on, you know, what coal, the attributes that coal has, why it's making a comeback. Uh, do Is there something that you're really interested in and bullish on that you think is like the lead horse in that race? as complicated, complicated as it is? This is going to be a boring answer. Nuclear fission. We, there are no technical or financial barriers to a carbon-free future. The challenge is all political. We have convinced ourselves, we have whipped ourselves into a hysteria around the dangers of nuclear power. This is not an accident. This is a proactive propaganda operation by the more radical elements of the Malthusian environmental movement. Um, we need to get over that and to become adults about it. 
Um, and so, um, you know, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. And when you measure the trade-offs, handling a relatively small amount of nuclear waste is an, a minuscule challenge compared to the vast life-nourishing benefits of nuclear energy. And uh, the sooner we get over these uh, concocted um, constraints, these artificially concocted constraints, and we get serious. Look, there is, if you believe that carbon emissions are an existential threat to the planet, and you do not have nuclear power and a nuclear power renaissance as the key element of your um, proposal to, um, to, to, to minimize that risk, then you're just unserious. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's our view. It's our strongly held view. It doesn't require nuclear fusion. You know, the existing fleet and just replicating the existing fleet would be plenty good enough. The latest generation of nuclear technology is so safe, so reliable, um, so affordable. The expense of nuclear power flows directly from the successful campaign on the part of environmentalists to make it as long as possible to get approved, mm -hmm. endless lawsuits, endless regulations that don't make any sense. They are working to make nuclear more expensive and to take long to turn on. And then they turn around and say, we shouldn't do nuclear because it takes too long and it costs too much. Well, you know, um, we would argue that if we were serious about it and we were on a war footing, um, we would wipe away all of that nonsense mm -hmm. and we would set about the task of taking the latest and best and most safe technology from nuclear fission and we would um, solve our challenge. We would be able to create limitless amounts of standard of living because that's what energy produces divided by our carbon emissions. If that is the equation we want to optimize, the answer, the blaringly obvious answer staring everybody in the face is nuclear power. And anybody who says otherwise is either a victim of propaganda or knowing, uh, you know, uh, uh, pro propagandists themselves. Uh, there was nothing boring about that answer, first of all. Uh, and it was a great one. If I'm not mistaken, uh, we're having a conversation. One is exactly part of the second week where we talk about some of the solutions and and opportunities. Um, so so you're, again, right right in line with what we're thinking as well. Um, Doomberg, this has been such a pleasure. We have so many more questions and so many more things we can talk about. So hopefully you'll come back and join us again so we can do that. Maggie, anytime. Fantastic. Thanks to all of you. Really thoughtful stuff. Always appreciate your input. Our special series continues. My conversation with Peter uh, Zion releases in full tomorrow. We're all about promoting debate and conversation. So I love that Doomberg had a different view from Peter. We encourage you to comment, ask questions. We're going to do a couple of AMAs around all of this uh, in the next two weeks. So you want to stay tuned for that. In the meantime, uh, here's a little bit more about what you can expect from the series. If we want to change the outcomes for this really screwed up world, where our wages don't go up, where we're being replaced by technology, where governments are massively in debt and we foot the bill via taxes, where we see debasement of assets so we can't afford as many assets as we like. So the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. If we don't like to see the rise of populism based on this broken society because the promises of the future have been broken, let's make our promises to our future selves come right. And that's by unfucking your future. Some of this is going to really fuck your future in 20 or 30 years' time, but we've got time to figure that out because it's unstoppable. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. 
For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.